And this morning on Revelation 4 and 5, worship as it is in heaven. What can we learn from heavenly worship around the throne of God? We'll be in Revelation 5, all 14 verses. I'm going to read them all as we begin and invite you, if you want, if you're willing and able, to stand with us as we read Revelation 5, 1 through 14 together. I'm reading out of the ESV translation. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. I began to weep loudly because no one was unworthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand, of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. You may be seated. Our Father God, help us to worship this morning. May we properly praise the Lion who is the Lamb. Amen. In 1996, a study was conducted at the University of Chicago to test the power of visualization. So according to an online article detailing the study, it asked a group of students who had been randomly selected to take a series of free throws. Uh, The percentage of made free throws were tallied, and the students were then divided into three groups and asked to perform three separate tasks over a 30-day period. So the first group was told not to touch a basketball at all for 30 days. So they took their initial free throws, 
number of them, their results were tallied, then they were asked, don't touch a basketball for 30 days at all. You call that maybe your control group. The second group was asked to practice every day for 30 minutes shooting free throws. So for 30 days, 30 minutes a day, they practiced free throws. The third group was told, come to the gym, but don't practice free throws. Instead, close your eyes and visualize making free throws for 30 minutes every day for 30 days. So what were the results after the 30 days? After 30 days, all three groups were asked to come back and take the same number of free throws they had in the beginning of the study. The first group of students who did not practice at all showed no improvement. Not a surprise. The second group that had practiced every day showed a 24% improvement in their free throw shooting after 30 days of practicing. The third group, the group which had simply visualized successful free throws, showed a 23% improvement, showing that just visualizing it was basically as effective as practicing it. It shows, I think, the power of vision for success. Having a proper vision enables success in the long run. That's why there was a high school student who dreamed of being a doctor, so she put her name with doctor in front of it in her high school locker and saw it every day. And as she studied and as she went through the ups and downs of high school, she saw doctor. And that empowered her and motivated her to get through the grind of studying. A compelling visualization or vision can help you succeed and endure during hard times. That is why, as we talked about last week, this vision is given to John at this time. If you know anything about John, in Revelation, he's the last living disciple of the twelve disciples. He's the last living uh, apostle and disciple of Jesus Christ. He is exiled on the island of Patmos in the Mediterranean. He is under Roman persecution. The church has suffered persecution under the Roman Empire. And during these ups and downs of persecution without and trials within the church, John is given this vision of the glorious throne of God. It's a vision given to him so that he and the church might endure. As Revelation 2 and 3 talk about to the letters of churches, that they may conquer in the end, that they may win. This vision is given so that they will succeed and be faithful to the end. And what we have here in Revelation 5 is the culmination of that scene around the throne and it gives us a big vision of who Jesus is so that we might endure in the end. Revelation 5 shows us that Jesus the Lamb receives universal worship because he is uniquely worthy. The summarizing truth of this whole chapter in Revelation 5, Jesus the Lamb receives universal worship because he is uniquely worthy. There is no one like him. There is no one like this lamb on the throne. What I want to do is unpack this vision for us so that we might be encouraged. How can we be encouraged? How can we apply this vision of Jesus so that we might maintain faithfulness to the end? That's the point of these two chapters, to show worship in heaven so that we might worship here on earth. Two major points I want to make to you, two applications of this passage. The first in verses 1 through 7. In verses 1 through 7 we see that the Lamb is uniquely worthy. And because of that, we may be comforted. There's no one like him, so take comfort. He is worthy. 
Be comforted. The lamb is uniquely worthy. Look at verse 1. And I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. I'll stop there. We saw in Revelation 4, there's the throne of God in heaven, and brilliant and radiant and colors and rainbow. And around that throne were four living creatures and cherubim, like heavenly beings, one with the face of an ox, one with an eagle, one with a man's face, one with the face of a lion, and these angelic beings, which are supernatural, kind of, I think, represent all of created order, are there around the throne. And then around those four living creatures around the throne, there's a ring of 24 elders who are clothed in white and have golden crowns on their head. They are royal and holy worshipers of God. We have this majestic picture of God in heaven being worshipped. And now the scene develops. We see that in the right hand, as it were, God doesn't have a hand. He's invisible. He's spirit. But in his quote-unquote right hand, there is a scroll. On it, seven seals. Seven is the, the number of perfection, and it's sealed perfectly. You might think of a wax seal on an envelope. There's seven seals on this scroll, and there's writing on the front and the back. Now, a big question is, what are the contents of the scroll? What is that writing? And I'll tell you there's much debate about that. I won't get into all of it. I'll tell you what I think that writing is. Basically, generally speaking, it is God's plan for the world and the judgment of evil and salvation of the nations. This scroll will make an appearance again in Revelation in chapters 6 through 8. The seals will be progressively opened, and as they're opened... God's judgment comes on the world in successive episodes. And then at the end of all that, in Revelation 10, an angel comes and brings this scroll to John and tells him to eat it, like Ezekiel. If you remember, Ezekiel was told to eat the scroll. And John is told the same thing that Ezekiel was told. It'll be sweet to the taste, but bitter in your stomach. So John is told to eat the scroll. And as soon as John eats the scroll, he is told by an angel... You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. It's Revelation 10:11. John eats the scroll, and then he is given to prophesy about the world, about many languages and peoples and nations and kings. So I think what the contents of the scroll are are basically God's plan for judgment upon the world and also salvation, more importantly, salvation of the nations, is his plan to bring salvation to all people and all nations, his plan for the world. That is what is written on the scroll. It represents God's plan of salvation and the elimination of evil. Then comes the angel's challenge. Is anyone worthy to open this scroll to break its seals? Which is a way of saying, is anyone worthy to reveal God's plan and carry it out? Is there anyone who can take this scroll and make it effective and affect it? Can anybody take this? And we have right here kind of a sword in the stone type challenge. Arthurian legend. Only the proper king of Britain could take the sword out of the stone. Or like Mjolnir Thor's hammer. 
Only he who is worthy can lift it, right? That's what's happening here. There's an open challenge or open auditions, uh, like American Idol. Anybody who wants to come and present themselves and thinks they're worthy, you're welcome. Is there anyone worthy to open this scroll, to break its seals, to carry out, to reveal the plan of God? And what we find here is that no one is worthy. In all of creation, in all the angelic beings, in all of humanity, there is not one who is worthy to approach the throne of God and take the scroll. The truth is, none have ever been able to. No one has ever been worthy to carry out God's plan. God initially planned for Adam and Eve to carry out his plan for filling the world with his glory, but they failed in it. And there's never been a worthy one since. Not Noah, not Moses, not David, not all of Israel. There's no one in all of humanity who has ever been worthy. And John weeps. He is distraught. Because he sees the universal condition of humanity and what that means for God's will for the world. If no one is worthy to take the scroll and open it, God's plan for the world cannot be carried out. There is no justice and judgment for evil and sin, no salvation of the nations, no redemption or restoration of creation, no hope if no one is worthy to take the scroll. So John weeps before the throne because no one is worthy. This is the great equalizer for all of us in this room. Before the throne of God, none of us are worthy. It's a good reminder for us who are Christians. Because we have been given the truth of God's word, because we know Jesus Christ, because we know the way of salvation, because we have been called to lead a different kind of life, as we'll see, we've been called to be priests of the living God. Because of these things, because we have God's word and a holy morality inscribed within and the ethic of God, because we have been given all of this, there at times will be temptation to think we are superior. Because we have been given superior grace, our twisted hearts may be tempted to think that we are somehow superior because of it. And here is the great equalizer of all of us. No one is worthy. If you're not a Christian here this morning, this is a word for you as well. No one is worthy. You are not worthy. None of us are. You may try and cover it up with self-affirmation. Oh no, I'm good. But you know, deep down, you are not worthy. All of us have sinfulness of various kinds in our history. 
none of us worthy to approach the throne of God. This is the truth of Christianity. It's not that we are superior at all as Christians. It's that God has given us incredible grace. Because none of us stand worthy before the throne. All of us need a Savior. And here's the good news. There's a Savior who can approach the throne. Verses 5 through 7, there's one who is worthy. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Here's the good news. There is one who is worthy. Who is he? He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. For the first time in Revelation, Jesus is called the lion of Judah. Why does he have that name? Well, it comes from Israel's blessings upon his sons. If you remember back in Genesis, Israel, Jacob, blessed his 12 sons, and Joseph and all the rest, he gives them blessing before he dies. And this is the blessing that Israel gives to his son Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, his son Judah. He gives him this blessing in Genesis 49. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So way back in Genesis 49, at the, the birth of the twelve tribes of Israel, Judah is given a prophecy from his father, Judah from you a lion will come, and the scepter will not depart from him. He will be a king. He will rule. The Lion of Judah. And then that Lion of Judah will be the same one who is David's great son. David, the great king of Israel, will have a son who will sit on the throne forever. God will establish an eternal kingdom through the root of the son of David. So here, the angel says, here is the one who is worthy. He is the Lion of Judah, the great king who was promised. The son of David, the root of David, who will establish an eternal kingdom. This one is worthy. So, Catch what happens here, because this is important. John hears. What does John hear in this vision? He hears of a lion of Judah, and he looks, and what does he see? A lamb slaughtered. This mixed metaphor. This lion who rules and has conquered and has won and is worthy. Who is he? He's a lamb who was slain. How did he conquer? What did he conquer? He is the king who conquered sin and death through his own sacrifice. He paid for his people's sins by sacrificing himself, by becoming a sacrificial lamb. As John the Baptist proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's a word for us who follow Jesus Christ. What does it mean to have victory as Christians? To follow the Lion of Judah. To be his people. To walk in his footsteps. How did he conquer 
How did he achieve victory? Through humble self-sacrifice because he loved the world and his people. We live in an age of conflict. Have you felt that at all? Conflict in politics, conflict in school, conflict at work, conflict in family. Just seeing the other day people talking online about how they still haven't spoken to their family because of disputes they had over COVID. We live in a world of conflict. How do we as Christians engage in that conflict? How do we win? What does victory look like for us? It is not by asserting our dominance. It is the way of the cross, the way of the sacrificed lamb, dying for others. This is the line of Judah. He's the lamb, but notice he's standing. He may be slain, but he is standing. And he has seven horns, which represent power and honor. He rules and reigns as a sacrificed lamb. And he has seven eyes, which represent the full, perfect spirit of God sent out into all the world. So this lamb is able to take the scroll, and he has the spirit of God represented in these seven eyes, which in Revelation 4 were seven torches. They represent the full spirit of God sent out into all the earth. This is how the Lamb rules. He sends out the spirit into the earth with the will and plan of God, the scroll. And by the spirit, it makes the rule of God powerful and effective through his sacrificial death. He is uniquely worthy. He's the only one who's done this. There is no other salvation, no other savior, no other faith, no other belief, no other power on heaven, in heaven or on earth that is worthy. Only the Lamb is worthy, so be comforted. The Savior. After being comforted by his unique worthiness, we see that all of creation then turns to worship and praise. So first we're to be comforted, and now in verse 8 through 14, I think we're to be captivated. This is what John wants for us. This is what the Spirit of God wants for us, to be captivated by the scene of worship, as progressive worship radiates out from the throne. Be captivated. The Lamb is universally worshipped. Look at verse 8 with me. There's three songs here. This is the first in Revelation 5. When he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. As the Lamb who is worthy takes the scroll, worship erupts in heaven. And there are two songs in Revelation 4. First, the the living creatures sing, then the elders sing. Now, the elders and living creatures sing together. And they sing this one song. They're accompanied by golden bowls and incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So here we see that worship is accompanied with music and prayer. They all go together, right? And if you know Revelation, you know what the prayers of the saints are throughout Revelation. What are the prayers of the saints? Generally, the theme is, how long, O Lord, until you bring salvation to the earth? How long? 
the, the prayers of the saints are asking for God's help to intervene. Just a quick note, I want you to see this. It's just a quick line, but notice that these prayers are worship. This going before God and asking for help and asking him, for him to intervene, that is an act of worship. It goes along with worship in heaven. So when you go to God in, in prayer and ask for help, you're not bugging him. You're not a nuisance to him. That is something that is sweet to his ear. He loves to hear his people cry out to him for help. That is a form of worship as we go to God in prayer. Because this song, these songs of worship are accompanied by the prayers of the saints and music. And the elders and living creatures are up in a song, and what is the content of this new song that they sing? What makes the Lamb worthy? First, he purchased people for God by his blood, which is a way of saying he died on the cross to save people. Think about this for a second with me. Worship in heaven is cross-centered. Worship in heaven, eternal worship that is perfect and pleasing to God is focused on the cross of Jesus Christ. You purchase people by your blood. It's why we never move on from teaching the cross. It's why the cross is at the heart and center of all that we teach and all we believe as Christians. Because that is what Jesus is worshipped for in heaven. It, it's not a footnote of his life and ministry on earth. The cross is the culmination of all four Gospels. They don't even talk all about his birth, but they talk about his death. Why? Because Jesus' death purchased people, paid for sins, paid the penalty we were due. And for that, for his sacrifice, for the work on the cross, Jesus is praised forever. There's some theologians, some Christians, some churches saying, well, we don't want to talk much about sin we don't want to talk, talk much about God's judgment upon sin or the cross because that's just such a bloody theology. God's wrath upon sin and Jesus dying for it and that penal substitution, all that kind of stuff. All that is just so narrow-minded. So the, the, the Christianity is about more than that. And of course, yes, Christianity is about more than the cross, but it is not less. And worship is not less than rejoicing in the fact that Jesus Christ paid for our sins and all the angels in heaven worship him for it. He is eternally praised because he is the one who died on the cross for us. So we never, ever stop teaching the cross of Christ. And who is this cross for? For whom did Jesus die on that cross? There is a, a universal scope to this, but there is a particular scope as well. Because it says Jesus saves people from. From where? From whom? By your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus' saving work on the cross is sufficient to save people from all over, no matter background, no matter what you currently believe, no matter whether you're paying attention now or not. The cross is sufficient to save people from everywhere. No matter what culture you're from, no matter ethnicity, no matter background, no matter how you were raised, no matter your sins, no matter how you currently identify, no matter what you believe, the cross is sufficient. Jesus' work on the cross is sufficient to save anyone. And in fact, the cross does save people from every tribe. It is global in its scope. And yet, at the same time, salvation is particular. 
What does it say? Does it say, do the angels proclaim, these heavenly beings proclaim, that Jesus saves every tribe, and language, and people, and nation? No. Jesus saves people from every tribe, and language, people, and nation. People are called out from every people. There's a particularity to the cross in Jesus' saving work. Theologians have called this limited atonement or particular atonement, particular redemption. Is the idea that Jesus' saving work is sufficient for all people, but effective for, he actually bought, he actually purchased a particular group of people, the church. And he has made them the kingdom of priests. And church, this is what you are. If you have been purchased by the blood of Christ, you are a priest and part of a new kingdom. What does a priest do? A priest mediates the presence of God. A priest represents God on earth. If you are a Christian, if you have been called out and paid for by the blood of Christ, then you are a priest, which means you are called to be holy. That's what it means to be a priest, one who represents God and Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian, part of a different kingdom. You are a holy person. And let me tell you, it is not legalistic, nor does it lack grace to call Christians to holiness. When the church calls people to act like Christians, that is not legalism. That is not a weird burden superimposed from religion. That is what a priest is. You are called to be a holy people, a different kind of people, a different kingdom, and your allegiance is to that kingdom. You first and foremost, are part of this new people, a people made out of every tribe and tongue, but a new people formed, so yet your new allegiance is not to your country, not to your political party, not to um, your family, not to any other social group on this world. Your primary allegiance is to this new kingdom that has been made by the blood of Jesus Christ. So we, as Christians, say we belong to a different kind of kingdom. We have a different citizenship. And that is our primary allegiance, our primary identity. As priests, we represent, first and foremost, Jesus Christ and his people. That is who we are a part of. That is what binds us together. That is where our affinity is. Not by skin color, not by ethnicity, not by background, or any other identity. We are, first and foremost, kingdom people. Because Jesus paid for us. And made us that. So, do we discard completely all other affiliations? No. I'm still going to be a Colorado Avalanche fan. I'll wear their jersey. But I don't give them my ultimate allegiance. I'm still a Halverson. I love my family. But my ultimate allegiance is Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Because Jesus is worthy. The song of living creatures and the elders inspires angels to sing. Verse 11. 
Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Do you see how the worship radiates out? It starts with the living creatures and the elders and then the living creatures and the elders together and now around to all the angels of heaven. A myriad is 10,000 and 10,000 of 10,000 is 100 million. It's a way of saying an infinite, limitless number of angels. I think myriad was the highest number in Greco-Roman counting. This is a way of saying all the countless angels of heaven worship together with one voice, which is a miracle in itself. Yesterday, my kids were playing a game where they were all trying to say the same word at the same time, and they were counting together, one, two, three, and they would say a word together, and they couldn't even do it, the four of them, to get on the same page at the exact same time with one voice. That's how you know it's heaven. Everyone gets along. And with one loud voice, they give Jesus their best. Power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. The best of what they have to offer, they give to this lamb who was slain. All singing with what? A loud voice. So here's reality for you. Worship in heaven is loud. And sometimes we complain about volume. You're going to have to get used to it. Now, by then, you'll also have redeemed ears. So there'll be, you'll have some help. But worship in heaven is loud. I know a story of a pastor once in the middle of the church's Sunday morning service while they were singing. He got up and stopped the church and said, this isn't sufficient. He said, we need to sing better than this. By the way we're singing this morning, we have forgotten who it is that we're praising. (laughs) Notice, there's no hesitation in these angels in their worship. There's no self-consciousness. I wonder what it sounds like. Nobody's saying, I don't have a great voice. There's no cynicism, no skepticism, nobody who's too cool to sing. In this worship, nobody distracted. Everybody together, giving all their breath as if Jesus is worth it. Is our singing worthy of the one we praise? Do we have proper worship to the Lord? Worship that isn't cynical, worship that isn't skeptical, self-conscious, self-hearted, embarrassed, or frankly selfish. But worship that is focused on the greatness of who Jesus Christ is, knowing that he is worthy and he is worthy to receive all of our praise. And I know I've heard some Christians say, well, I don't really like singing. And I understand what you're saying. I think I do. Because not all of us are natural-born singers. doesn't come easily to all of us. Sometimes worship songs are awkward, and sometimes we're not in the right mood. But I will tell you this. When you see Jesus like this, you will not say, I don't feel like singing. Singing may not be your favorite part of church. 
This praise may not be your favorite part of church. Maybe you love the community, you love teaching, you love instruction, you're a heady person. Maybe you just love the community of people that you belong to and be encouraged. And this part, this singing part, is a little bit awkward for you. Let me tell you this. In that moment, if you see Jesus as he truly is, you will lift your voice. It'll be the involuntary response of the greatness of Jesus Christ. And if you're unwilling to sing, it makes me think that somewhere in there you haven't quite yet seen Jesus. Because if you see Jesus as he is, the lion who is the lamb, you will sing and erupt in praise. And I know this because that's what happens in Revelation 5. is a picture of the end when all come together and worship Jesus Christ, the one who is worthy. All redeemed creation singing together. Verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne of the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. It is a picture of universal worship, similar to what Paul described in Philippians 2. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is a picture of universal worship. And here's what's fascinating to me, amongst many things. But think about this. All creation now sings and praises Jesus Christ the Lamb. And who do they do it in front of? God on the throne. Just think about that for, for a second. God, who is on the throne in all of his glory and power, is there. Jesus the Lamb at his right hand. And all creation, all the heavenly beings, all angels, worshiping Jesus the Lamb, and God accepts it. The fact that he doesn't strike all of creation down for idolatry at that moment is the greatest proof that Jesus is God. Because God is a jealous God. He does not give his praise to another. And yet there is the Lamb. Worshipped by all of creation in the same breath as God. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. He is Lord worthy of worship by all creation. In fact, you can't really worship God without worshiping Jesus. And if you're not worshiping Jesus, you're not worshiping God. They are worshiped in the same breath. My prayer is that you'd be caught up, captivated in this praise, and it would be foundational from your praise going forward. And we need this. Why was John given this vision? Because being a Christian is sometimes hard. We are not, not quite fully experiencing persecution at this moment as Christians. There are some troubles. There are some inconveniences. Maybe we'll get to full-blown persecution at some time. But there are times where being a Christian feels lonely. There are times where you feel isolated. There are times where it's going to feel like the world is against you. As parents, you're going to wonder, how am I going to raise my kids in this world? How do I teach them? How do I guard them? How do I protect them? How, how do I keep them from the snares of the world around me? And I'll tell you this, no matter what you do as a parent, you will never be able to keep your child from the snares of this world because the biggest snare lies within. They're sinners. They're unworthy. 
So you wonder, how do I prepare people? How do, how, how do we encourage one another to stay faithful to Jesus Christ in the end? Here it is. Have this vision of the greatness of Jesus Christ. Worship him. Be captivated by the lion who is the lamb. If you worship him as worthy above all else, then you will remain faithful to him. My job as a pastor, I believe, is to shepherd us all, by God's grace, into worship and praise of Jesus Christ. To give this vision of Jesus because there's nothing more compelling on this earth than the one who is praised by all creation. Jesus the Lamb receives universal worship because he is uniquely worthy. This is an invitation. Come and worship him. Be comforted by the fact that he is worthy when we are not. Be captivated by the lion who is the lamb, the root of David, the one who was slain for the salvation of people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Would you pray with me? Our Father, I guess our prayer is simple, just that Jesus would be big among us. The truth of who he is, the one who has conquered, the one who rules and reigns, who is worthy, because he's the one who was slain on our behalf for our sins, but who now stands, praised in heaven, one day praised by all of redeemed creation. Let our song always be worthy as the Lamb. Amen.